You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Why is land in Hong Kong so expensive? Let's break it down. The average price for a 430 square foot flat in Kowloon is 4.8 million Hong Kong dollars or 11,147 Hong Kong dollars per square foot. With 4.8 million Hong Kong dollars, you can afford to buy a 17th century French castle 300 times the size of that flat. So how do we get here? Hong Kong is one of the most densely populated places in the world. With a population of more than 7.3 million people, that's equal to 6,777 people per square kilometer. The problem is that residential land use only accounts for 7% of Hong Kong's land, while country parks, which are off-limits, comprise some 40%. In principle, all land in Hong Kong belongs to the government, but plots of land are sold to developers through a tender process each year. Developers are granted leases for a term of 50 years to build private flats, hotels, and offices. For years, the government has followed a policy to sell land to the highest bidder. This is to ensure the government earns enough money and that it upholds the philosophy of a free market. Because of a windfall in land revenue, the government hit a surplus of 92.8 billion Hong Kong dollars last year, much higher than its original forecast of 11 billion Hong Kong dollars. Recently, land in Hong Kong has been snapped up by rich mainland Chinese developers. In 2013, they won one out of every 10 residential land sales. Last year, they won one out of every three. In February, two Chinese developers paid a record 16 billion Hong Kong dollars for a plot of residential land, or 22,118 Hong Kong dollars per square foot, making it the most expensive land sale to date. Should the government rethink its land bidding policy? Critics have urged the government to scrap its land sales tendering process and replace it with a public auction sale to improve transparency and to prevent land prices from escalating out of control. Other places have taken a different approach. In Paris and in several Nordic countries, local governments have launched global competitions to look for the most innovative designs to solve their urban challenges. In Taiwan, Manila in the Philippines, and some Indian states, owners are taxed for vacant land to curb speculation and promote development. So what do you think? Is it time for a change? Well, is it time for a change? As that video hinted, this week we're looking into the Hong Kong property market. Yes, uh, often rated as the most expensive in the world. It's a controversial situation because 7.3 million people uh, live on a tiny area of land, about 250 square kilometres. It's about a third of the size of Singapore. And the government, uh, due to the booming land market, is sitting on a uh, budget surplus of some $140 billion. 
Hong Kong dollars. That's equivalent to about 25 billion Australian dollars. But yet uh, they can't solve their housing problems. What we're seeing all around the world and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking again at some of the problem housing markets around the world, some of the do's and don'ts. All right, now, the real reason I'm doing this show on Hong Kong is because of this next video. It comes out of America, uh, that uh, snappy website Vox, V-O-X, has a video. I think it had about 8 million views so far. And uh, as you listen to this one, you'll see a number of uh, the sort of memes that are pushed by uh, the powers that be land supply, greed of government, and, you know, leftyism saying the free market is bad. How do we find a way to juggle between the two alternatives? That's what we talk about here on The Renegade Economist. So I don't know if you've seen this one on your feed, but it's uh, Hong Kong's caged houses. Have a listen. It's more expensive to live in Hong Kong than anywhere in the world. Hong Kong has been ranked the least affordable housing market in the world eight years in a row, and by a long shot. Housing prices are now almost 20 times more than annual income. That means that a household making 50,000 US dollars would, on average, be looking for a house that costs $980,000. And it's getting really bad. Hundreds of thousands of residents now squeeze into incredibly small apartments, most of them no bigger than a parking space. So these are cage homes, which basically fit one person and their belongings. And they basically stack these in a room in order to fit as many people as they can in the room. And yet the price per square foot for these smaller houses just keeps shooting up. I visited these homes to try to piece together an explanation for this trend and to meet the people who are being squeezed by the world's least affordable real estate market. thousands of people in this city who live in spaces that are between 75 and 140 square feet. For some perspective, a typical parking space in the U.S. is 120 square feet. And I'll just translate here. I'm saying it's difficult. There's no sunlight. One of the most common strategies for small space living is this subdivided house model, this big space that's been divided up into a bunch of tiny little living spaces. These people basically have room for a bed and a table and a few belongings. These are tiny cupboards. I have space for my karaoke beer. What makes this model work is that they have a bigger communal space where they're able to have their cooking and their washing and the bathroom open to everyone so that they can save space and save money in their actual living quarters. So this is the kitchen for this space. Um, which is shared by four families. Everyone has different habits. We fight over the smallest things. My son has ADHD. It's not good for him living in this small space. 
explanation here for why the prices are so high is land scarcity. You know, seven and a half million people crammed into this series of islands. It's gonna drive up the prices. The same story in a lot of places that have run out of land that are in high demand. Think San Francisco or New York City. Okay, this might be the story in New York City and San Francisco, but is Hong Kong actually running out of land? Let's see what the drone says about this. Flying over Hong Kong, you start to see that while yes, there's a very dense urban landscape, there's also a whole lot of green space. Government land use data says that 75% of the land in Hong Kong is not developed. Now some of that is mountainous and rocky and not easy to build on, but certainly not all of it. this question about density to two experts. One is a Hong Kong citizen and the other is a 30 plus year resident. Both are advocates for better urban design. Are high prices primarily the result of land scarcity? No. 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 It's not. Okay. There's a land use issue. We can also land as being inefficiently used or conserved. The problem isn't the shortage of land. The problem is bad land management. Land use, land management. What these experts are referring to is that of all the land in Hong Kong, only 3.7% is zoned for urban housing. But it's not because of mountains, it's because of policy. And this gets to the heart of the explanation of why more and more people are living in homes the size of parking spaces. The first thing to note if you want to understand the real explanation is that the government owns all of the land in Hong Kong. Well, all except for this one church that the British built here when they ruled it back in the 1800s. And it kind of just escaped the whole government owns all the land thing. So the government owns all the land and it leases it out to developers, usually for 50 years, in an auction process where the highest bidder gets the contract. With such scarce and valuable land zoned for housing, real estate companies, more and more of them coming from mainland China with lots of money, will duke it out in these auctions and will end up at an astronomically high price. Like this plot of land that was just leased out for $2.2 billion, which set an all-time record for the most expensive land ever leased by the Hong Kong government to a developer. So the way that government zones and leases land is the first part of this. The other part of this explanation has a lot to do with taxes. If you're the type of person who navigates away from this video when you hear the word tax policy, stay with me here. This place loves low taxes. It's a great place to do business because the corporate tax is low, no value added tax, no sales tax, free market economics, low taxes. That's embedded into the like fabric of this place. Look at all those low taxes doing their work, building up those skyscrapers slapping on those bank logos all over town. So if the government isn't getting revenue from taxes, it really needs it from another source. And in the case of Hong Kong, that source is land sales. So a lot of the government revenues here driven by uh, land and revenues. And it's about 30% of government public financing income. The government of Hong Kong can lease out this land to developers at astronomical prices, make a ton of revenue from that, and not have to raise taxes on the people of the corporations that reside here. And they still proudly retain their ranking as the freest economy on earth. 
this means is that the Hong Kong government doesn't have a huge incentive to free up more land and lower prices. But while this current arrangement of bidding and auctions is really good for revenue for the government and good for the market generally, it's not super good for the people of Hong Kong. It can only fit one person. I rent this coffin apartment for $300 a week. All the small spaces, this is easily the most cramped. These are coffin homes. Should I ask you just a quick question about your living space? Housing's just too expensive. They have to do something about it. The government is slowly working on this problem. Year after year, new policies come in that are meant to fix this, but they're slow to change, mainly because they have an incentive to keep the status quo as it is. Out here at this industrial complex in Hong Kong, I met with a guy named Eric Wong, a local inventor and businessman who has seen a business opportunity in the midst of this space crisis. Eric grew up in Hong Kong and has been thinking about small space living for a long time. This entrepreneur has sci-fi-looking capsules for sale, and our IKEA bed costs more than this. So. Capsules come in one or two person sizes and are meant to provide a more efficient and hygienic version of the cage and coffin homes, all at a relatively low price. Down here, there's a little box where you can put all your valuables. And so there's mirror lights, there's reading lights. But these capsules, as innovative as they are, really just put a band-aid on this housing problem. They don't serve as a real solution. A real solution would need to come from something that's much less profitable and fun to look at. Government policy and zoning reform that will free up more land and put the interests of the people above the interests of the market. But until the government can make that happen, people in Hong Kong will continue to squeeze into smaller and smaller spaces. So the pressures of housing are hurting in Hong Kong. Incredible when you see the visuals of people having their entire life's cottons in uh, barely more than a bath size. As you heard, uh, they're lucky to get the size of a car park to live in. And uh, the ridiculous thing is that uh, so little of their land is actually used for housing. Uh, much of it is uh, reserved for environmental parks and so forth. So, of course, right-wingers quickly jump on that and say, well, there's the problem. It's all about land supply. And as we know, when we hear the words land supply mentioned, that is essentially code for rezone my land and deliver me windfall gains, make me millions and millions of dollars in my sleep. Well... The government owns quite a lot of that land, but some of it has been sold off to developers. Very hard for me to find the exact details on how much the developers do own, but I, I, yeah, when you look into this, there's, there's a few shady deals going on, of course. So just the basics with Hong Kong. 
they have a property tax which is 15% based on the net annual value, which means the house and land. They are clever in that they have a 20% cap on the amount of rental deductions that can be taken off uh, the taxable income. So uh, there's certainly no negative gearing prospects in Hong Kong. They have a form of rates as well. Uh, they have a form of rates as well. Pretty minor charge from what I understand. Importantly, there's no capital gains tax. So that encourages a lot of profiteering. But they do have a special stamp duty on resales within the first three years. So that's trying to remove the speculative middleman where property flippers are hit with a, a, a stamp duty tax of up to 20% if sold within those first three years. So, uh, yeah, it's a, a reasonable system. One of the big advantages, as you heard, is because the government raises so much money through its uh, property taxation system, uh, this land auction bidding system is where they earn most of their money. It does allow for lower income taxes on corporations, on individuals, and that's why Hong Kong's traditionally been such a strong city for trade. It's why their ports are so popular because business is set up there as a major entry point into China, out of China. But yeah, back to this uh, land bidding issue. When the government sells land in fee simple at a one-off fee, that basically allows for developers to bid based on expected future capital gains. Now that's not ideal for us. We'd prefer a yearly land rent paid to the government along the lines of their rates. And that's a holding charge. And uh, a lot of the Hong Kong property taxes are based on the turnover when they just sell the property. So Hong Kong's chief executive, equivalent to their prime minister, Carrie Lam, has been trying valiantly to deal with this housing pressure point they have. And uh, she announced six new housing policies, including a vacancy tax on June 29 of this year, 2018. And uh, yeah, the, the tax on vacant property, wow, it's really spreading around the world, isn't it? From uh, Vancouver to Melbourne and beyond, uh, many cities are looking at this and... Uh, from the details uh, I've identified, uh, the fee will amount to 200% of the rateable value. But the question is, is it going to be applied on all vacant homes or just the new ones? And it seems like this tax is only on the new vacant homes, whereas the secondary market, those that uh, have been bought and have been sat on for probably three three plus years because of that special stamp duty uh, I talked about before and we have discussed on the show a number of years ago uh, yeah people are probably just sitting on that property for longer than three years so they avoid that special stamp duty and over that time uh, the increase in property prices would have been more than uh, that 20 percent anyway but, uh, yeah, the fact that the government isn't targeting those sort of properties with the 
vacancy tax is a concern, and uh, when you when you think there's only 3.7% of uh, total apartments, some 43,000 vacant flats there, of which somewhere between five to 9,000 are new flats. Yeah, there's, there's barely 34,000 empty flats in the secondary market. So it's not really going to solve, this, solve the problem, is it, Carl? Come on, what, what can we really do here to sort out these Hong Kongers? Well, it's not an easy, easy problem to solve. Uh, we certainly know that. And the pressures are mounting up uh, with all of these uh, shared flat arrangements. Uh, one in five Hong Kong women uh, in, living in subdivided flats claim to have been, dare I say, sexually harassed. You know, we heard about all the little fights that go on with people sharing these tiny spaces. Must be uh, hard with people singing karaoke in your same flat, but you don't really know them because they've got their own separate space. Vegetarians living with meat eaters. Who knows how they work it all out? Must be. You know, again, you wonder how much economic pain, how much social pain people put up with before they want to get to the bottom of this and figure out what's going on. And the sad thing is for Hong Kongers that the size of their flats is reducing. They have some 800,000 public housing rental flats and most of them are smaller than 430 square feet, which is basically three or four car parks. But in Tokyo, where we traditionally associate tiny apartment sizes, uh, 643 square feet uh, is, is sort of an average size there. In Singapore, it's way up at 1,100 square feet, so aren't they lucky? Now, because of these pressures and the limited land size alongside these wealthy Chinese developers coming in with deep pockets, there's the development of uh, nano flats. Not sure whether they're coffin flats or not, but uh, these ones are being defined as those smaller than 215 square feet. And the growth in those has surged eightfold over the last five years. So what about immigration? Well, it's not that huge. Some 41,000 mainlanders from China moved to the city in the past 12 months, a decrease of some 15,000 compared to the previous year. So that's a similar amount to what Berlin is putting up with uh, under their housing affordability pressures, but uh, mere uh, water off a duck's back here in uh, Australia, where in Melbourne it's some 140,000 plus uh, immigrants uh, a year are moving into Melbourne, into the city, and Sydney's uh, something similar to that. So, uh, yeah, Australia's immigration rate, uh, when you look at those sort of percentages, yeah, I suppose it's no wonder that uh, radicals like Peter Dutton are uh, edging their way forward in uh, conservative uh, politics. Not something we like to see, but uh, as we've talked about of recent, that is the new economic model in the post-globalisation space. We don't manufacture anything we build houses. We build infrastructure to, to support these uh, new immigrants who can accelerate their way into Australia with these significant investment visas uh, holding $5 million plus, 
uh, all sorts of other financial incentives for the wealthier types to get into uh, Australia. But yeah, poor Hong Kong, here they are on these coffin flats. Let's get back to that story. So over about the last 15 years, uh, about a million people have moved to Hong Kong uh, from China. That's 13% of Hong Kong's population. And the fight for survival is seeing uh, Hong Kong protesters driving out street performers who are mainly Chinese immigrants from uh, their Star Ferry Pier. Despite all these pressures, uh, the waiting list for public rental housing is only five years long. Incredible here in uh, Victoria that the, the Greens have uh, recently forced government to release the public figures of just how many people are on our waiting list for public housing in Australia. I think it was somewhere around about 70,000, 80,000 people and well over 10 years to find your way into public housing. shady things is going on in Hong Kong is uh, the existence of short-term leases and whilst the government owns this land and uh, people are struggling to find places to live those who live a little bit out of town on uh, lavish uh, rural estates have been able to access these government leases where there's an incredibly low level of transparency and the land rental rates that uh, these people have been able to achieve are some 10% of what uh, the market should be dictating. So uh, according to an NGO, uh, Landwatch, uh, this must become a public database so that everyone can see who's renting what and what sort of income the government's receiving from that. That sounds fair to me, that that sort of... Uh, land, public land database is what our colleagues in America really benefit from and what here in Australia they can't believe we have to, uh, the sort of hoops we have to jump through to find out who's, who owns what land and the incredible cost we have to pay for accessing that data is uh, a real barrier to affordability analysis. So uh, <clears throat> yeah, back to uh, some of these other policies that the Hong Kong government has announced. Uh, one of them was the subsidised sale of flats. And uh, they're basically subsidising flats uh, to be sold at 52% of the market price instead of the original 70%. So, of course, everyone's going to jump in on that and uh, up goes the price of those apartments in total. So even with the subsidy, similar to the first homeowners grant, any of these demand subsidies end up pushing up house prices. They're also opening up nine sites of uh, public land to turn into these subsidised apartments. But uh, one of the issues I want to see more detail on is uh, their stated uh, tactic to look at pre-sale tactics for land developers. So that sounds a bit like the stage releases controversy we've talked about on the show widely for many years of how housing lots for sale are drip-fed to the market to keep prices uh, heading ever higher. That's certainly no free market. 
So if we're to get serious about this, uh, the Hong Kong government needs to do what's happening in Singapore where they charge a yearly land lease fee. That's what's needed, not a stamp duty on turnover, a penalty uh, special stamp duty, uh, a, a property tax on sale. All of those things uh, just deter people from selling property. We need to encourage the land onto the market. We need to discourage capital gains. So when you charge that land rent, it basically takes it away from the price of the property because you know you've got this accompanying expense coming with the property. So really it makes uh, the profiteering from real estate uh, that much less attractive and from that deters so much speculative incentive from the market. So those big Chinese developers wouldn't really want to come into the market because they know they can't make that easy money. So again and again, listeners, it's all about land rents. We just have to get ahead around it. It's great that uh, more people are discussing it. I hope you can come to our 127th annual dinner on Tuesday, September the 4th, just uh, under two weeks away with Dr. Cameron Murray, the author of The Game of Mates. And of course, we're discussing housing policy fraud. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Check out the show notes at earthsharing.org.au.